exactly what was going to happen. There was a kind of growing sense of anticipation, wasn't there? And I don't know if you, um, many of you watched the kind of the opening night spectacle. It was actually really, really, really moving. And certainly when, um, uh, who sung um, Abide With Me? What was, who was that, Ellie? Who was the singer? Emily Sande sung that. It's kind of growing sort of hairs on the back of your neck. This kind of growing sense of, hey, do you know what? I think this is going to be quite spectacular. Or maybe you're one of those people that loved last night at the proms. Anyone want to admit to that? Yeah, come on. There's a few of you. Um, great. The rest of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But for last night at the proms, you can watch the whole prom series, and it kind of builds and builds and builds, and then you have this kind of ridiculously, very madly British last night at the proms, and a growing sense of expectancy, and then the final event. Well, in a sense... Um, this is what's been happening in Jesus' journey. For three years, he's been building his ministry in many ways towards this day. For three years, he's performed miracle after miracle. For three years, he's healed the sick. He's healed the lame. He then healed the blind, which is kind of a real messianic sign. That was promised that the, kind of the Messiah would open the eyes of the blind and healed the lepers. He reached out and he touched people who were richly unclean and they were dramatically healed. He's kind of increasingly got a following of people who are following him, pursuing him. He's been teaching them, and he's been teaching all about the kingdom, and there's a kind of growing crowd following him. And, and then, of course, just a few, kind of a, a, no more than about a week before this event on, on um, Palm Sunday when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem, no more than a week before, he'd been with Mary um, and Martha, uh, you remember their brother Lazarus had died. Lazarus, his great friend, had died. And Jesus, four days, four days he'd been dead. Jesus turns up seemingly late. Four days he'd been dead in the tomb. And Jesus raises him from the dead. And the ripples for the Jews who hear this and see this, the many who are there in mourning, um, see, see Lazarus come out of the grave. He's been dead four days, taking his bandages off. The kind of... By this point, the crowd would have been stoked. The atmosphere would have been electric. Everyone would have been talking about this Jesus. Is he the one? He must be the one. He's now raising people from the dead. So Jesus' entry in Jerusalem was never going to be a kind of casual stroll into town. And he deliberately come to declare something, that he was the anointed one, that he was the promised Messiah. He was the one who had been predicted for generations by the prophets. It's interesting, though, about a year before, Jesus was teaching the really large crowd out in the country, uh, and it was getting late, and the people start getting hungry. And uh, it's, one of those, it's one of those terrifying moments for Jesus' disciples. Everyone's looking really hungry, and there's thousands of people, and Jesus turns to them and says, um, you really need to feed these guys. And you can just imagine the abject, abject terror on the disciples' faces. Did, did, did he just say we need to feed them? How are we going to do that? And then, of course, Jesus does this incredible miracle, takes a few sort of tuna paste sandwiches, splits it up, and it just goes and goes and goes and goes, and it feeds 5,000 people. So much so there's actually 12 baskets left over, and the people are watching this happen right in front of their eyes. It being broken, passed out, and it's still there. It's being broken, passed out, and it's still there. It's a miracle right in front of their eyes. 5,000 people see this happening. And by that point, the crowd at this point go wild. They're so impressed, in fact, that at that moment they want to make him king there and then. John 6 says that when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the, to the mountain by himself. See, the crowd sense there's something about Jesus that they've never seen before. 
He's got the bearing to be the long-awaited king of Israel, the hoped-for one. But of course, the king that they wanted wasn't the king that Jesus had in mind. They wanted an earthly king. They wanted a king who wouldn't simply sit on the throne of David, but who would rid Israel of the Roman occupation. And he was everything that you could want for in a leader. He was charismatic. He was powerful. He was decisive. And more importantly, if he was going to lead an army, he was capable of feeding thousands of people. He could feed his army. And not only that, when his army got injured, he could heal them. And when, he di- when they died, he could raise them from the dead. He was the perfect king that they had been waiting for. What army on the face of the earth could stand against such a king? That would have been the discussion amongst the people, amongst the Jewish nation. They wanted that sort of king. Jesus, of course, had no plans for any kingdom like that. He tells Pilate later on, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is from another place. Um, I don't, does anyone here ride? Anyone here a keen horse rider? No one. Anyone ever ridden? few of you. Have you ever seen a horse? Okay, yeah, good. That's got a response. Great. So you know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about a horse. Oh my gosh, this is hard tonight. So horse riding. I'm not a horse rider particularly, although I have ridden a horse a few times. Um, I shared at St. Tom's this morning. Many of you might not know this. About four generations before Jesus rides into Jerusalem, there was a guy called Judah Maccabee. He got the nickname. His name eventually he was called the Hammer because he was... um, so he became a soldier, but actually his background was that he was a Jewish priest. And he was incredibly upset by the fact that the Syrians had occupied Jerusalem, taken over the temple, kind of the Jewish worship was restricted. And so he raised an army to battle, to free the temple. Um, and he got an enormous kind of army of Jewish men to fight alongside him. And he led them into Jerusalem to bring freedom. This happened in uh, 163 BC, so 160 years before Jesus was born. And he enters Jerusalem riding on this incredible war horse, this white stallion. And all the people go wild. They cheer him. They welcome him. They wave palm branches before him. They cry, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Because most of them, many of them, thought that he was the Messiah that had been promised. When he enters the city, he cleans out the temple, burns incense, offers sacrifices, and lights an enormous, um, huge menorah, kind of candlestick, that burnt for eight days. And to this day, our Jewish friends celebrate Festival of Lights, or Hanukkah, to celebrate his great accomplishment. That's where that celebration comes from. Not long after this, he's in another battle, and he's killed and buried. When Judah, this chap, came riding into the city. He was greeted, as I said, by adoring kind of crowds and crowds of people, waving palm branches, cheering Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Almost everything that exactly parallels what happens some four generations later with Jesus, except for one seemingly insignificant thing. Now, I asked how many of you have ever ridden just outside. Here's your opportunity. Just outside of Bath in Wellow, there's a little stables that you can go to. It's very lovely. And you can go and pay your 25 quid or whatever it is and go and kind of go on a little trek around Wellow. Now, I've, I've done horse riding a little bit, a kind of bit of trekking up in Scotland. And when you go there and they're kind of these sort of 
I, I was going to say old nags because they all look a bit tired, but the, the beautiful horses that are there, I'm always slightly disappointed if I'm offered some kind of little pony. Uh, I kind of want a big horse. And certainly if you're given a choice, you would pick the big horse. And certainly if it was a choice between a horse and a donkey, I know which one I'm going to pick. Donkeys are not cool. Donkeys are fine on a beach with kids, but I'm not going to ride a donkey. They're seemingly insignificant. They're small, unimpressive creatures, lowly, insignificant. And what does Jesus pick? Well, a fabulous stallion like Judah, a white stallion, we're told, this incredible war horse that he rode in ahead of his army. No, Jesus picks the donkey, of course, which we, we know fulfills the prophetic word in Zechariah. A donkey is not an animal of war. A donkey we don't associate with military power. In fact, a donkey is a pretty humble creature. Actually, biblically speaking, in terms of the time, a donkey actually was more of a, not just a, a, a beast of burden, but actually was what royalty would come in on. Certainly not a war horse. Jesus chooses to ride the donkey into Jerusalem because his kingdom isn't going to be a kingdom about force of arms and coercion. It's something completely, wildly, unexpectedly different that no one could imagine. Judah Maccabee rides into Jerusalem to try and free Israel from the nations. Jesus rides into Jerusalem to free Israel for the nations. And we're the inheritance of that as Gentiles because of what Jesus did. So what was in his mind? I don't know if you picture... The day, Jesus coming in on a donkey. It probably was a beautiful blue sky like today. Cloudless, sunny, hot. Thousands, hundreds of people cheering him, waving palm branches. They're all declaring, this is the guy who's raised the dead. This is the man who opens blind eyes. This is the miracle worker. This is the man who can draw thousands of people on a hillside to hear. We've never heard teaching like it. Now he's raising the dead. He's got to be the one, the chosen one, the Messiah. Finally, we're going to be free. And so the crowd are going wild. They've been waiting, waiting for centuries for the Messiah to come. And here he is. What was in Jesus' mind? It must have been such a contradiction. Because, of course, he knows where he's heading. It's not to conquest or victory in the same way that the, perhaps the crowd would imagine. He's heading towards the cross. He knows in a week's time he's going to be brutalized on a cross. He's going to be suffering there. Now, I, as I grew up, I kind of went to church, but I really struggled to understand what the cross was all about. I kind of got the brutality of it, but what, what was his death all about? Well, we're going to have an opportunity to think a little bit about that perhaps this week, and Maundy Thursday will be a really helpful part of that journey for some, I think. The torture, the abuse. You know, in Gethsemane, we're told that Jesus, as he anticipates his death on a cross, starts sweating blood. For hundreds and hundreds of years, people thought that was a kind of pictorial image of the, the tension that Jesus was under in, in Gethsemane. No one believed he actually sweated blood. Until the First World War, when in the trenches, there were the first kind of accounts of people so dehumanized and traumatized by the events around them that they literally started sweating blood. It became... And then people thought, well, Jesus then did sweat blood. What was he going through? And as gruesome and as awful as the crucifixion was, remember crucifixion, you actually suffocate more than anything else because 
your lungs are crushed by the weight of your body and the only way you can breathe is by pulling yourself up on the nails to catch a breath. It's a slow, awful, horrendous way of dying by suffocation. So much so that the Romans themselves eventually banned its use. But it wasn't that for Jesus, the deal. That wouldn't have been what was in his mind, as painful as that was going to be. That wasn't why in Gethsemane he prayed, Lord, would you take this cup from me? The reason he prayed that prayer, the reason on that journey into Jerusalem all of these thoughts would have been going through his mind was because he knew what the cross was really about. That on the cross he would carry the weight of humanity's entire, global, historic, barbaric depravity. The sin of the world for all generations before and to come. Carrying on the cross the weight of global wars, murdered generations, broken children, abused teenagers, war-torn nations, bombed churches, disease-ridden people, my pride, my jealousy, our fears, our anger, our hatred, our brokenness. 1 Peter 3.18 in the message says this, that's what Christ did definitively, suffered because of other sins, the righteous one for the unrighteous ones. He went through it all, was put to death, then made alive to bring us to God. And I can't help but think, as he's riding in on this donkey and the crowd are going wild, and they're smiling at him and children are kind of throwing their cloaks and their palm leaves before him. And as, I, as he, I'm sure, smiled back and waved to them on that beautiful day, cloudless, blue sky, it must have almost seemed perfect, almost like Eden. And Jesus, the burden carried by this cult, carries in his heart the weight of Eden's half-eaten apple. That first sinful wrong choice made by Adam and Eve. They went to that forbidden tree, didn't they? And they ate from that forbidden tree and death embraced humanity because of sin. And here's Jesus now, travelling on a donkey, the spotless one, the perfect one, the sinless one, travelling towards another tree, embracing death again but as the perfect sinless sacrifice so that he could swallow up death so that we could be free. Matthew 21 says, See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey. Having salvation. That's the message of Easter. That's what we have. That's why next week on Easter Sunday we're going to be celebrating the resurrection. But I want to encourage you this week, in this kind of holy week, and today on Palm Sunday, as we've thought about the suffering of the church, I want us to find some space and time just this week to consider the suffering that Jesus went through. Not in a kind of strange way, but in a way we can understand what he took so that we don't have to. Maybe some of you here struggle with shame or fear or anxiety or kind of struggles in your life that you just can't seem to get rid of. You need to know that as Jesus rode towards the cross, as he came into Jerusalem, he was going to carry that for you so that you don't have to. He wants you to be free. That's the love of the Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And that's hard to understand almost why he did that. Why would he be willing to do this? Why would Jesus ride in Jerusalem knowing what the end would mean for him? 
And the simple answer, my prayer for us all this week, is that we'd really grasp this week, why would he do it? Because as he rode in on a donkey, somehow in the mystery of God, your name was before him. And he would look at you and say, why I'm doing this? Because I love you. I'm going to invite the band up and we're going to just, I'm going to pray for us as we draw to a close. Father, we want to thank you that we can be part of your family because you brought us back into relationship with the Father. You died brutally on the cross. You carried our brokenness. You carried my brokenness so that I could be restored, forgiven, free. Chains broken, chains that bound us in sin, chains that separated us from the Father's love. And on the cross, you took our pain, you took our brokenness, if we just yield to you. Jesus, I thank you that you rode into Jerusalem for me. You rode into Jerusalem for every person in this room. May we realize afresh the depth of your love, your grace, that you truly are the King of Kings, a King not like people expected, a King that didn't come on a war horse, but a King that came in a humility. You didn't grasp Godhead. You didn't grasp your power. You didn't fight in earthly ways. And you yielded yourself as the perfect sacrifice. Lord, you truly are the King of kings. May you be exalted in our hearts, in our lives, I pray.